0: The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. In the um, very well-known legendary story of the uh, life of Wei one of our illustrious Chan Zen ancestors. At the moment of his realization, he said, I thought there was an eye who sees and hears. That was a great mistake. It's only a sound perceived with a mind resting in no place. Now I understand there is no birth or death. This wide open state of mind is my original mind. The mountains, the rivers, the sun, and the moon are all me. That is a translation and paraphrase from Harada Roshi in his book, Not One Single Thing, which is a study of and commentary on the Platform Sutra. So again and again and again, here is this teaching of no self, which, you know, is a weird phrase to use. I think it, I don't know, is, is imperfect in a thousand ways, but um, uh, is, is trying to uh, give us a sense. And um, it's kind of like we have to start a little bit with like, well, what are we discovering about self? You know? like like what is your sense of yourself? I mean like how do you know that you have one? I mean you don't. <laughs> but why do you think? Why do you think that you have one? And and when I reflect on this, it's like, well, there's there's like a feeling. There's like a feeling of being me. This is very interesting. So we have a feeling that we have a self. What else? Well, there are all of these experiences, and I seem to be having them. How else could they happen? This is why we look so closely in Zen practice, why we do ordinary things, or we do nothing at all, And we look so closely to see, is it true? Is it true that there is a self who all of this is happening to? Also, when we look, we see like, well, I have all of these thoughts and ideas and opinions. I have a whole history. I have a whole way of being. Surely this is myself. Well, it's something. It's something, but what what is it? In the Jata Sutta, a uh, practitioner goes to the Buddha and says, tangled within, tangled without, people are tangled in tangles. And so I ask you, Gautama, who can untangle this tangle? Roshi quoted this. Um, recently, a few weeks or months ago, and um, uh, it stayed with me, and also what stayed with me is um he, you <laughs> were illustrating like how do how do we untangle a tangle and the the um image that um he used was like. Uh, a, a large cord, or perhaps I pictured—maybe you said this—a garden hose that's like, kind of like, you know, wrapped up on itself. And how, if if you're gentle and loose with it, and he like made this gesture, you can just kind of like shake, shake it out, right? And the, the tangle falls away. <laughs> so, have you ever felt that you were a tangle? you like, yes, oh my gosh. And um, can you get like, an, like a, a, a visceral feeling of like tangle? Like I was remembering as a little girl, I, I guess I was not into brushing my hair. My hair would get very tangled. And then at certain times, I guess when there was like something to go to or some place to appear at, my mother would be like, OK, we have to brush your hair and she would get the johnson and johnson no more tangles out and it's I, it was like a conditioning spray or something and she'd like shh and then like have to like hold my hair and like gradually slowly like tease out the tangle and i'd be like ow ow it hurts and she'd be like don't move you know Ch-ch-ch-ch. and then the tangle isn't anything right there's nothing there you can shake it out or if you have to comb it out. It's just a way of describing like lots of things got like looped around each other. So we're a tangle and there's nothing there. We're just a lot of things looped around each other. And you know, when it comes to like, Uh, a core teaching, like the teaching of no self. I mean, I know I really wanted like the big reveal. I'm sure a lot of you do. Like make it happen all at once, just like in the stories, like bam. But what we may actually find and what may really actually serve us better in the long run is like gradually, taste by taste, we start to experience, oh, this is the flavor. This is the flavor of no self. We taste for ourselves the flavor of concentration, of having our mind settle, seeing like, oh, interesting. When my mind settles, that creates a sense of greater peace and ease. So this sense of like identity, this like tangle, why? What, what, what is it from? There's a, another sutra from the Pali Canon, the Chula Vedala Sutta, in which um, a, a lay person comes to the nun Dhamma Dina and asks her, about um, identity. And this is a very cool sutra because, for one thing, it is spoken by a bhikkhuni. And um, Dhammadina, the, the questioner in this sutra is Visaka, who is a lay person and actually was Dhammadina's former husband. And the story is that like Visaka actually heard the Buddha. Um, teaching the dharma and was so deeply moved that he came home one day and said you know Dammedina like I'm I'm I need to leave home I'm going to leave you everything they were extremely wealthy I read in one commentary that he was a millionaire <laughs> So Visakha's like I'm going to leave you everything I need to do this thing and Dhammadina's like okay yeah actually I'm going to ordain too so I don't know who got their stuff, but anyway, Dhamma Dina packed it up pretty quick. <laughs> Actually, I do know who got their stuff because Dhammadina packed it up pretty quick, headed off to the, the women's um, nunnery, uh, presumably to study and train with Mahapajapati and Patachara and Kema and all of those names that come early on the list, and um, was extremely proficient in the dharma and became an arhant and came back to the town, and guess what? Yeah, Visaka hadn't ordained after all. He was still there with like millions of dollars. And I mean, I don't really know what to make of that. Like, did he change his mind? Or is that, like, not how it actually happened? Like, I can easily imagine that Dhammadina was like, hey, I'm leaving. And Visaka, like, to save face, was like, well, yeah, I'm I'm leaving too. And then, like, didn't really go through with it. Anyway, Dhammadina comes back to the town. And there's Visaka. And much to his credit, he goes and respectfully um, questions her. So the sutta starts like this. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Rajah, Raj, Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel's sanctuary. Then Visaka, the lay follower, went to Damadina, the nun, and on arrival, having bowed down to her, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to her, self-identification, self-identification. It is said, sister. Which self-identification is described by the Blessed One? I feel like I read that kind of wrong. Let me just go through that again. Just the last part: self-identification, self-identification. It is said, sister. Okay. Um, which self-identification is described by the Blessed One? And in a different translations, this is translated as identity. So identity, identity. It is said, sister. What is identity that the Buddha speaks of? Or personality, interestingly, personality, personality. It is said, sister, which which personality is described by the blessed one? And so Damadina then begins to speak. She she starts. Basically, the sutra is quite complex, and um, we're just going to take a little bite off of the front. I found a commentary on it by. Um, Mahasi Sayadaw, the the very well-known and important um, Burmese Vipassana uh, meditation master, that was 120 pages. <laughs> yeah, so we're just going to take a little slice off the top here. Um, so Dhamadina, meaning, so it's complex because Dhamma Dina, I just want to give her credit fully, goes then through, in response to Visakha's question and pursuant questions, goes through the whole eightfold path, right? And all of these sort of major foundational teachings of the Dharma, and gets to the point where like, he's asking and her answer is like, okay, like now we've got to the point where we're talking about Nirvana. And Visakha's like, well, what about, and she's like, listen, you are going too far with these questions. Go ask the Buddha." And Visaka goes to ask the Buddha. And the Buddha says, just as Dhamma Dina said, it is so. I would not have said it any differently myself. And so this is considered like quite a, um, you know, there are not that many sutras, I guess, that are told by someone other than the Buddha and considered to be the Buddha's words. But back to the beginning of this. So um, Visaka has asked, what what self-identification is described by by the Buddha? And um, Dhammadina starts by speaking about the five clinging aggregates. So self-identification right, is the skandhas. It's clinging to the skandhas. So the skandhas are form, our body, sensation, our feelings, perceptions, the things that we perceive, our mental activity or formations, all of those stories you're telling yourself, and consciousness. So we attach to those aspects, those heaps, those skandhas, and we imbue them with a sense of self, just by virtue of our clinging. She says, These are the, there are these five clinging aggregates from Visaka. Form as a clinging aggregate. Feeling as a clinging aggregate. Perception as a clinging aggregate. Fabrications or formations as a clinging aggregate. Consciousness as a clinging aggregate. These five clinging aggregates are the self-identification described by the Blessed One. This clinging she then goes on, Visaka asks another question. She goes on to talk about how well the clinging, he says, well, where does the clinging come from? And she says it comes from craving. Um, and he asks, well, how do we get, you know, how do we sort of release this craving? And she talks about the eightfold, the eightfold path. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of like um, how, how, how we imbue, our um specifically our thoughts with an extremely compelling sense of self i've heard um you know self being used by contemporary buddhist teachers like it's it's helpful to think of self as a verb as something that we're doing that we're selfing right we're imbuing this sense of me this sense this very elusive intangible sense of me into things. We're selfing. And we're doing that with other things in the phenomenal world too. And so we're like getting in here into this very tangly, tangly realm as like we're selfing, sitting here selfing, telling ourselves stories about ourselves and further um, entrenching the view of a self. And I was remembering a um, uh, an interview that I saw. Um, actually, it's in one of my dad's films. My dad is a documentary filmmaker, and he made a film called um, Jesus and Buddha. And in it, he, uh, he interviews a. Um, it's it's a series of uh, dialogues with people who um, are both identifies both Christian and Buddhist. And anyway, none of that is actually relevant to the anecdote I wanted to share, which is um, this this woman uh, who is speaking about her first experience of going to a Zen center. And she has just been through hell in her life. Her marriage has ended. Um, It was like a very messy divorce. And, you know, I, I, I don't remember the details, but she's extremely distraught. And she is like, I need to meditate. I need to get some peace and quiet. And she finds a, a Zen center. And I think, I might be wrong about this, but I think it was Sung Sanim. Um, anyway, so she, um, I might be wrong about that. Sorry, Dad. OK. Um, <laughs> So she she goes, she goes, she's all distraught, she's upset, her life's falling apart, she needs to meditate. She goes to the Zen center, and it's a very well-known, well-regarded um, Zen teacher who greets her there, and she, you know, asks for some of his, his time and sort of spills out the whole saga. And it's like, it's it's so it's so awful. It's like just that she's had to go through all of this. And he sits there, kind of impassive, and says, Story. And she is completely like she's relating this because across the years, you know, decades have passed that like being met with just this like cutting like story was so uh, unexpected that it shook something loose in her. And I remember myself years ago at the temple when Miyotai sensei was there having um, daisan with Miyotai, and um, I was very distraught <laughs> about some circumstances in my, in my life and like, anyway, um, she was like, she was kind of like, well, if you're going to be telling yourself stories about yourself, like make it a better story. And she took like what I said, and she totally like inverted it and like made it sound like really good. And I was sitting there, I was like <sniffs> I was like, "Yeah, but like you're making that up." And she was like, "Yeah, you're making it all up." <laughs> that stayed with me. So our stories, and just an aside here that um, At the same time that we are practicing and seeing through this self-identity that's founded on clinging and grasping, we should be aware of the two truths, right? So there is no self. And here I am in my body, in my form, with my identity that I move through the world in. And so to respect that right, and honor that, that's real, too. And and the identity that I carry in, in, in the phenomenal world is made from my karma. It is stitched from my experiences, from my awareness. It is the fruit of the life that I have lived, and in that way, it is sacred, too." So about a year ago, I shared a creation story that I invented um, about two beings, Lu and Zo, who were aspects of original presence. So not, not beings exactly, but for the purposes of that story and this one today, you may wish to picture them more like people. You can picture them like you. And so in that first story, out of this original presence, Lu and Zhou created the world. And then they made creatures that they hoped would be able to perceive and appreciate the wonders of the world. And they called them Buddhas. And the story turned because instead of fulfilling their purpose and appreciating the wonder of their being and the wonder of the world in which they were an inextricable part, the Buddhas lost touch with who they really were. And deeply confused, they um, were more and more invested in a misconception of separation and isolation, and they ended up creating a lot of mayhem. And the rest, as we say, is history. <laughs> so, a long time has passed when our story picks up. So, one day, Lou had returned from a jaunt to some distant galaxy and was clutching a scroll to their heart and practically vibrating with excitement. Zoe, Zoe, I met a weaver today. Zoe, do you you know what a weaver is? Zoe cocked their head and raised an eyebrow. Someone who weaves? They guessed. Yes, said Lou, exactly. Someone who weaves. But this is not just any someone. Look at this. Lou carefully unfurled what they were holding and held it aloft. It appeared to be a long banner rich in color, in pattern, in texture. It shimmered. It practically danced with aliveness. Zoe took it in at a glance and gasped. Oh, oh my, said Zoe. Oh, my. Zoe was looking at the most exquisite image they had ever seen. Time seemed to fall away as they leaned in close. The image clearly told a story, astonishing in its detail, riveting in its subtlety, with colors and forms and shapes that told a tale of such vast expanse and profound meaning that as Zoe studied it, they actually wept. This, said Lou, is by Fee. Fi is the ultimate weaver in the whole universe, and they have a studio filled with tapestries 10,000 times bigger, more beautiful, and more wondrous than this one. Take me there, said Zoe, and off they went. And so Phi became fast friends with Lou and Zoe. The three of them wandered among the nebulas, cavorted amongst the black holes, and hung out on the edge of the supernovas. Then, one day, Lu and Zoe showed Fi the world that they had made, and the Buddha's. Lu was still a bit abashed, explaining that their vision hadn't quite manifested as planned. Something had gotten twisted in the Buddha's awareness. They, they think they're separate, Lu explained. We, we've tried everything, but they don't seem to get it. It's been hard. That's when Fi had an idea. I've been spinning this new thread for weaving, Fee said. (laughs) It's the most exquisite and the most wondrous thread I've ever spun. It's made, Fee paused for dramatic effect, it's made of awareness itself. I wonder if it could help. Well, after much consideration, Liu and Zhou agreed that the benefits outweighed the risks. And so they decided to bring Fi's newly spun thread of awareness to the Buddhas. The thread was extremely fine and extremely subtle, so fine and so subtle that it was difficult to even perceive. And it had the magical quality of almost effortless weaving once the shuttle got started, it almost seemed to weave itself. Well, the thread of awareness was released among the Buddhas, and they got to work quite quickly. Their early creations showed great promise. There were all kinds of tapestries with amazing stories, tales of magic and mystery, of fame and fortune, of good triumphing over evil. Lou clapped in excitement. I think it's working, they said. The Buddhas really seem happier. Zoe had to agree. They do seem to love weaving their stories. Even Fi conceded that the tapestries were pleasant enough. And every now and again, one would come along that impressed them. Cool, said Fi, nodding approval when they saw the one about a Buddha named Odysseus and his journey. Nice job with the cyclops. But after some time, and perhaps this could have been predicted, things started to go south. The problem wasn't with Fee's marvelous thread of awareness, and the problem wasn't the tapestries either, per se, at least not at first. The problem was that somehow, between the ease of using the thread and the fineness of the images, The Buddhas had ceased to be able to perceive the tapestries for what they were—creations. Meaning, the Buddhas were weaving away, making story after story after story, but they thought the stories they told were real. Oh shit, it's like the bats, said Zoe. Fee looked quizzical. We created the bats to make these really cool sounds and to share certain knowledge with the Buddhas, but then it turned out that the Buddhas couldn't hear them, Lou explained. It was a big disappointment. (laughs) The infrared light was like that, too. (laughs) Lou, Zhou, and Fi looked on in dismay. You see, once the Buddhas forgot that they were weaving, the quality of the tapestries naturally started to decline. There was no longer any pride of artisanship, no, no effort to tell a beautiful tale. This part really irked Fee's aesthetic. Oh, for crying out loud, Fee exclaimed, will you look at that? This one keeps weaving the same story over and <laughs> over and over again. I mean, it looks like they could go on like that for years. What happened to originality? The Buddhist tapestries were not only becoming flat and repetitive, they were laced through with random judgments, irrational obsessions, and exaggerated opinions about nothing at all. As the tapestries piled up, the effect was pretty depressing. Meanwhile, the Buddhas behaved as if bewitched under the spell of their own sorry tales. You could see it in the way they held their bodies, braced in fear, or cowed in self-recrimination, or inflated in a strange, arrogant pride. You could see it in the dull fog that came across their eyes. Stop, cried Lou, stop. But the Buddhas just kept weaving. Another 1,000 tapestries about not being good enough. Another 10,000 about blame and shame. And it wasn't long before you couldn't even call them tapestries any longer. Just twisted, knotted up masses of thread telling fragments of stories about what to eat and what to buy and where to go and what to do, Fee winced and shook their head. What a waste. It was almost like the thread had a life of its own. Every Buddha was weaving constantly, all day, all the time, even at night while they slept. It was exhausting, it was dangerous, and they didn't even realize they were doing it. Meanwhile, the threads were everywhere, loose and ragged, getting caught on everything tangled up, knotted until the Buddhas were dragging bits of flotsam and jetsam with them everywhere, tripping over their own threads, floundering beneath the weight of endless yardage. It had become a struggle just to get through the day. Zoe observed the debacle with a sigh. They need to put the shuttle down, stop making up stories, and get back in touch with reality, said Zoe. They have to recognize that they're making it all up. I mean, even though it's not visible, they need to learn to see it. Fee and Lou could only nod in agreement. Well, once they do stop, said Fee, the thread should just unravel itself. Then what, asked Zoe. Then nothing, said Fee. It's just awareness. No big deal. Lu sighed. Well, we gave them eyes. We gave them ears. We even gave them tongues and a nose and touch. They already have everything they need. Almost, said Zoe, and disappeared into the workshop. Some long time passed before Zoe emerged. The Buddhas were basically encased in cocoons by this point, bumbling around, each one in the thrall of their own endless stories. Zo held out their hands. Two soft, beautiful lights glimmered. Ooh, Fi admired. Very nice. What are they? Asked Lou. Patience said Zoe, and attention. Well, with patience and attention, all kinds of things became possible. The Buddhas slowed down. Their weaving wasn't so frantic, so habitual, so endless. They began to notice what they were doing. Sometimes they would notice a corner or a loose thread, And from there, they began to see the knotted and tangled threads of a story. With patience and attention, they began to stop their compulsive weaving. And as they stopped, it was just as Phi said, the thread of awareness would unravel itself. The stories would simply dissolve, and there, In the clear light of the world, the Buddhas began to see and hear and taste and touch and feel their way back into reality. Now, once again, they could choose what stories to tell and whether to tell one at all. What story are you telling yourself right now? (laughs) So mindfulness is a disruption to this clinging, this attachment. And also, there's nothing there. When you look directly at what you're creating, see, it unravels, it goes. It was never made of anything but maybe the thread of awareness. So we don't need to fight. We don't need to fear. We don't need to judge. Instead, to just stay present in the process of our own grasping and clinging. Just see. Be patient. Pay attention. Know that the story just gets subtler and subtler and subtler. I think of Tai Sensei saying, in a sense, you're making it all up. And when we look when we see, when we let the the thread of awareness just shake itself out, we can ask, whose is it? Whose awareness is it? And as we learn and see that we are creating our life, to understand the profound power we're holding, we could create a different life. It's not a magic trick. It is about how we use our mind. Do not underestimate. So there is plenty of time in this session We are at such a ripe and juicy place in the week. We each have a practice. We should trust it. Noticing the stories as they arrive, how attuned can we be to seeing, here it comes. How patient can we be when it comes up for the 10,000th time? So let us soften these cocoons, allow them to dissolve, and ask the great question of who? Whose awareness is it? Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.